we don't, don't want to do just locomotion for the sake of locomotion. We want to do something that is more challenging. Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Mayo Challenge podcast that is all about that $1 billion question, how do humans move? The Mayo Challenge is a unique opportunity for the AI community to confront the challenges of learning robust musculoskeletal control policies from the University of Twente's Robotics Center. My name is Anniek van Damme, and next to me is the manager of that Robotics Center, Steven Varon. Hi, everyone. Steven, last episode we talked about digital twin technology, and I thought that was super interesting. It definitely was, Anniek. And what really stuck with me that episode was Massimo talking about the importance of validating the models to develop better technology, but also because with wearable technology, we rely heavily on its functionality. We need to build trust in the technology as well. Well, I have a question for you, Stephen. Let me, let me grab it. Okay. I've got two Kiwis here. You didn't expect this to be in a podcast uh, recording, but I have two Kiwis here. I'm going to give them to you in one hand. Yeah, so the other one cannot continue. Yeah, so could you please rotate those two kiwis in one hand? Yeah, I, at least I can try. For the listeners, it's fruit, not New Zealand people. <laughs> it, it's really... Oh, I almost dropped one. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I didn't ask you to rotate kiwis for no reason. This was the challenge the participants had to deal with last year. This year, there are two different tracks that teams are biting their teeth on right now. Let's ask the man who comes up with these tracks why on earth you choose these kinds of actions. Let's start. In this series, we've spoken to the three founders of the Mayo Challenge. And it's these three initiators that decide what human movement they want participants to work on. Because that is exactly what is fascinating them for years. How do humans move? We told one of them about Steven struggling with the Kiwis. And to be honest, Kiwis are actually as close as it gets. The real challenge was to rotate bounding balls in a hand. And in case you wonder, those are quite heavy Chinese meditation balls. Not really an everyday movement, I'd say. So when it comes to pouring a, a drink, I can totally imagine that's a useful uh, manipulation thing. So, but if I if I understand you right, it's not about the the capability of moving balls or kiwis around in your hand. It's no, it's about the fine control. It's about the fine control of force in each individual finger, and the individual control of fingers. That's typically what you see when you're typing on a keyboard. That's what you see when you are holding a pencil and you are actually writing. That's called fine motor skills. And they involve the generations of tiny forces that are carefully balanced to accomplish that very precise movement. And so we wanted to capture that with the bowling balls. You hear Professor Massimo Sartori, expert on neuromechanical engineering. He's explaining it had nothing to do with the ability of moving kiwis, bowling balls, ping-pong balls, or even walnuts in your hand. The goal was in-hand manipulation. But they raised the bar when they came up with this year's challenge. So the manipulation track um, is based on two phases. Um, phase one uh, has the objective of developing a specialized policy to train um, a, a human arm and hand model to pick up 
um, a common household object, such as a bottle, and to grasp it, to orient it uh, with respect to a target uh, position, and then to locate it into a target object, which could be a basket, for example. Uh, the challenge with respect to last year is that this year we introduced a more extensive model of the arm that also includes the elbow and the shoulder, so there are more biological joints involved and therefore more muscles. So it's just a more complicated model to control. Um, in the second phase, uh, we focus on generalizability. So we ask participants to come up with policies that can work not only with a predefined object and a predefined uh, object orientation, but we also want the policy to work with unseen objects of different geometries or different weight or different inertia, and also with uh, target orientations that are not predefined. Target orientations that are not predefined. Can you make that a bit more concrete? Yes, this means that we typically we want the, the, hand, the arm model to pick up and grasp an object. And before placing it into the target bucket, we want the object to go through a specific trajectory that is predefined. So, yeah, yeah. So, for example, if you uh, unlock the tap then if, and you want to pour a drink and then you hold it at a certain height, Exactly. Right. Also with a certain angle. With a certain angle. That's, exactly. that's what you mean? That's exactly what I mean. Yes. Yes. We discussed the motivation for this year's manipulation track with another founder of the Mayo Challenge. It is Vittorio Caggiano. Based in New York, he has a background in neuroscience and went for an industry career in artificial intelligence. Caggiano explains why they chose to extend the model and add elbow and shoulder. We had last year a challenge that was all about in-hand manipulation. And uh, we were very excited to see such interesting like uh, uh, efforts of people really excited about that. But in the end, I mean, in-hand manipulation is something that you don't do that often. You need, I mean, your ability to manipulate objects is really the, the full arm extent that you take objects, you can move them around. So we were like pretty, was pretty obvious to move in something more complex and have like really all the complexity of the manipulation, and that we designed this manipulation task. To zoom out a little bit and get the context, this challenge, this model, policy, of this manipulation of last year, was placed on the MyoSuite platform. It extended the digital twin library. To understand what this platform is, we talked to the third founder. It is Vikash Kumar. This expert on robotics AI and digital twinning works as an adjunct professor at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He tells us about the motivation for the MyoSuite in general. He is determined to unravel the complexity of human movement, from the decision to the execution. The science of movement, that's what we want to understand. And this is where the basic physical laws come in, that is where our anatomy as well as what are the physiological details of us as an individual that leads to this decision making plus the movement making capabilities come in. So what MyoSuite is, it is a contact rich musculoskeletal physical simulation in which we capture the physiological realism of a human body such that now we can embed the whole decision-making process in this physical form factor that observes the world using the same sensory modality that we observe 
and can act and interact in the world the same way we do. So it's a playground, a platform in which you can see what happens when you make a decision. And then on top of that is the AI side of the MyoSuite, where we develop AI for these beings to become smart. And that's the decision-making side of things. And when I say the decision-making, here the AI is making decisions about movements, physiological movements. We've talked about one track, the manipulation track, with picking up a bottle and place it into a bin. But this year, the founders introduced a second track, a lower limb model. You hear Massimo Sartori. First of all, the locomotion challenge was not part of the 2022 challenge. It's a new entry in the 2023. In the first phase, again, we, wanna come, we want teams to come up with a specialized policy that enables the musculoskeletal model, the digital human twin, to walk over ground and chase the opponent. Whereas in phase two, we focus on generalizability again. So we want a single policy to be able to chase and tag the opponent, the opponent but also to escape, so to run away from the opponent. So it's a more complicated game. On top of that, Differently from phase one, where the digital twin is uh, only to walk on a flat ground, in phase two we also introduced obstacles and uneven terrains, which make the challenge more complicated. Vittorio Caggiano, who is currently dedicating his career to the development of Mayo Suite and Mayo Challenge, says that many people asked to add locomotion. And they listened to the engaged community, resulting in a lag model exalted for this purpose. But at the same time, we got really overwhelming requests to have locomotion. Locomotion is one of the things that really excites people uh, having body around that can move in the world. And yet again, Caggiano doesn't go for the quick and easy fix. We don't, don't want to do just locomotion for the sake of locomotion. We want to do something that is more challenging, that enables people to have a complexity of the task that is not just move from A to B. And that's why we were inspired by the chase stack competition, where you have an additional challenge of another factor, another uh, player that can play, uh, can, that you need to chase or you, or you need to be chased from. And that created all different layer of complexity, uh, plus other uh, small uh, things that we put in this, uh, in this environment. So those were the major motivations to try to cover more complex behavior that are somehow very distinct. One is on upper body in a hand, hand manipulation, and the other is lower body uh, locomotion. But that gives like a, now covers both aspects of very complex uh, behaviors that we can, we can provide. So those were the major motivations behind the two tracks in this year's challenge, with upper body covered with manipulation and lower body with locomotion. Sartori, leading a lab on neuromechanical modeling and engineering, puts it in a nutshell. Well, we wanted to include movements that are relevant for our everyday life. And so we use our hands to interact with the environment. So we wanted to have manipulation. And that's also a very complex uh, problem in robotics. We are still not able to have dexterous manipulations of robotic hands. 
Uh, and locomotion is also fundamental for, for our well-being. Uh, the ability of, of moving and, and keeping a, a healthy uh, lifestyle. So we thought that uh, locomotion and manipulation represent two of the most important movements that we use to live our life. Yeah. And so we wanted those two movements to be reflected well in the challenge. Despite their differences, both tracks lead to the same ultimate objective, using digital human twins to enhance future healthcare. Sartori touched a bit upon the different phases in the tracks. You hear him about the structure of the challenge. The overarching goal of both tracks is to uh, enable generalization. And that's typically what, what happens in the second stage of the Mayo Challenge. In the first stage, uh, which is just a pre-selection of the final teams, we ask participants to generate motions that do not require a lot of generalization. So, you know, it could be one neural network to accomplish one specific task, and we just want to, we just ask this task to be performed correctly. But in the second stage, we want to create uh, neural networks that can generalize across different tasks. So basically, one neural network that can generate different type of grasps or move different objects or walk at different speeds or walk in different trajectories. So it's, it's all about having a versatile neural, ne neural network. There's been so much research done yet. I mean, we've been working on um, modeling human behavior for quite some time. Why hasn't this been done before? So, um, in my opinion, the, the major divide was finding a way to link in a convincing way um, advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning specifically with advances in digital modeling, in digital twins. So far, these two community, in my opinion, they have been progressing almost on different tracks. Um, we have very complex biomechanical models available, but these models, they are not designed with the requirements needed for AI. So they're typically very complex, they are too slow, and so you, you cannot use them together with neural networks, uh, and they cannot be trained on millions of iterations. Uh, that would take too much. So the, the main idea was to actually develop models that would meet the requirements of AI, and that we could finally bridge these two communities, which had been traditionally progressing through separate tracks. We're gaining momentum here, people. This couldn't have been done until now. In Maya Suite, we're working towards the very first combination of those tracks for the very first time. Vikash Kumar is excited about this from an AI point of view. On the AI front, now we are able to solve tasks that are much higher complexity than the current AI models we're able to do. For example, in robotics, the, the, the general dimensionality of a problem we solve, sorry for uh, going a little bit deep, the dimensionality is the order of like 20 or 30, something like that. A human body, like just by the number of muscles we have, this is the order of like over 500 muscles. So we need that 2x almost scale up in terms of problem complexity, even we understand the current algorithms being able to solve it. And we found that that was not possible. So we are developing even new algorithms that can solve problems of this complexity. 
And we have been able to show that we have some foundation model that captures what it means to be dexterous. To make realistic models, we need to meticulously study human behavior. Steven van Roon, manager of the Robotics Center at the University of Twente, discusses this learning from us humans. And I, and I have a question for Vittorio. And you said, well, we, we need to really understand how people move, uh, which is a scientific approach to, to a lot of problems. We really need to understand how it is now before we can figure out a way to do it in an alternative way or by using technology. Um, but is it, is it really always necessary to do so? If we try to robotize now our dishwashing activity, and without the dishwashers that we have nowadays, we would probably start by building two robotic arms, one holding the plate, the other one grasping a, a brush, and then, and then try to make a robot that, that cleans the, 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 um, the, the, the dishes. And just because that's the task we know, and we want to robotize or automate. Is there an alternative way, not just to mimic, but just to find the solution that has the same result without mimicking the original? Yeah, I think that that becomes the question of how do humans get to that point? So you're talking about something that is already well framed. You have a task that has been defined. You know the feature. You can observe the behavior. How humans will reach the same task if they have that constraint? Probably do something slightly different. If they have different size, different strength, different age, different experience, reach the same task, will accomplish the same task, but in a maybe slightly or even in a greatly different way. That's the key for me. Because that is basically, if you look at the control, how even those different humans do, the way that they will hold a plate somehow will have some similarities, but some differences. The way that we lift and charge the dishwasher might have some similarities, but also some differences. Vittorio outlines that even how we humans do the dishes is not precisely standardized at all. Now, how do we make sure that we can capture the similarities so that we can have algorithms that can be generalizable, but at the same time, so we capture also the uniqueness of that behavior? Because if we are able to understand how we generalize across different individuals, different body size, different experience, then we have found some fundamental technology. We can create what is in a high, a fundamental model that is able to generalize across different conditions. If we then understand the peculiarities of each individual uh, ex um, expression of that behavior, then we understand how your own specific motor intelligence accomplish that task. And that is you. I mean, one thing that we tend to, in nowadays, to simplify with AI is that the intelligence that everybody has is unique. We are, we are different, completely different. But still, we have somehow the same body, with the same number of bones, with somehow the same number of muscle. We work somehow organizing the same type of... Mo so we, have, we are unique, but at the same time, we are very similar. And those, for me, are the most interesting part. And again, these are extremely applied because when you see a robot, when you see you start creating one representation, the robot is very standardized, very applicable. So that is where you want to focus all your generalizability in one uh, embodiment, in one uh, specific body factor. 
If you see a robot, that is one generalized representation, one embodiment. Now let's bring that back to the idealistic applications of this technology. And although I do think that dishwashers improve our society, I mean situations where we help others. People that, due to diseases, stroke or accident, any trauma you can think of, can benefit from a wearable robotic. We talk with AI specialist Kajano about generalizability, while we know that everybody is unique and has its own natural way. So I think there there is a big thing that we need to consider, that um, at the same time that you have an injury, your body readapts to complement for that injury. So what you want to have with a prosthetics or rehabilitation device or some complementary device is to recover some some movements in the most natural way. But what is then your natural way? That's the question too. So it's something that you want to have as much symmetry as possible, as, as reduced uh, mobility as possible, as the least amount of effort possible. So the, the, all those things are part of that. And probably we can design things that can try to provide all those. And the idea of my suite in the end is to create a platform where you can simulate all those options, but also to try to, to create something that is very specific to what happens to your muscle. So the key point of my suite is really at the muscle level, how do you coordinate those muscles to create that behavior? This becomes a problem or a scientific question because if you get an amputation or if you get any trauma, your muscle coordination pattern change because of that trauma. And change in, in you can be completely different the way that changed to me because of the traumas are different, because our own coordination might be slightly different. And that's the uniquely opportunity that we have if we can simulate exactly what happens to you that is different from me, then that device can recover exactly the type of behavior that you need and not just some general behavior. Of course, I mean, it's simpler to look for generalistic behavior because you have a standardized model, but humans are different. That is where basically we need to consider as fundamental part. I think that is fantastic. Getting proper knowledge on how my unique body moves from decision-making to execution. And I've been building my library of experiences for the past 40 years. That is some serious data stacked. Stefan and I talked to Massimo about this. My daughter is one and a half. She's, she's, she doesn't have that library already that I have, so she is not as educated or trained yet to, to grasping everything at the right force or with the right way. But I can, and you can probably either, um, if, if I blindfold you, and put in a strawberry and a, a beer, a half glass of beer and a, a rotten peach or whatever, you'll probably manage to, to get them every, every item off the table without any problem. Yes. Um, but that's, like you said, you, it's, it's also our imagination and our library basically on past experiences. Is that something you build up in Mayo Suite as well to, to make sure that even if you have this challenge of locomotion and, and aiming for one thing, that you can make use of all the, of all the past experience as well? Because we do. So, so is it also allowed in technology? Yes, and, and, and I think that's the beauty of, of having an open source framework and having a challenge that's been repeated for the second time. Because um, 
the solutions that were achieved in last year's challenge, they are now part of the state of the art. They are just available for, for, for everyone. So people can, in principle, decide to use pre-trained neural networks that were generated in uh, last year's challenge as a starting point for this year's challenge. So those neural networks, they already take into account the geometry, the shape, the weight of the objects that we used in last year's challenge. And so that knowledge is now basically built in in those, in those networks and you can decide whether or not to, re to reuse them. So we've been talking about the work that needs to be done in the development of models. And with this year's challenge, we're expanding horizons with the manipulation and locomotion track. Although there has been done a lot of research in both the field of AI and musculoskeletal systems, now that these two fields are combined, we can accelerate. Nevertheless, there will be obstacles on the road. In the previous episode, we talked about sustainability, energy consumption. In the next one, we discuss regulatory hurdles. And then there is the still existing gap between science and clinical practice. We ask Massimo Sartori, one of the founders, why he still foresees a bright future. Well, there are, there are many challenges um, ahead. Um, but I think that um, we do have um, the tools now to really bridge across these multiple communities that have been divided for a long time. So finally, now we are starting to connect advanced biomechanical modelings with advanced AI. It's just the beginning. In two years, we uh, assembled a team. We opened two challenges. We had many downloads, more than 22,000 downloads, just in two years. And, and I think um, there has been a lot of acceleration here, and I'm excited to see where this will go to. But I think this is just the beginning. Um, but I think that this uh, bridge that we created will really enable uh, new advances in the field of simulations, in the field of healthcare, in the field of, of, of robotics. So I'm, I'm, I think that the future is, is bright indeed. Well, Stephen, I thought you managed quite well with the Kiwis, though. It turned out in our interview that those challenges have nothing to do with Kiwis. <laughs> no, indeed. It's all about upper fine motor skills in that manipulation track. And in the end, creating versatile neural networks. The next episode is the final one and is all about winning. We'll be recording during the NeurIPS, the conference that focuses on the field of machine learning and computational neuroscience. It's held in New Orleans. We will talk to the winning team, the team that is cracking their head around one of the two challenges we've just discussed. I can't wait to talk to them about their approach, how they tackled it. And if you're curious too, subscribe right now and make sure you don't miss it. Yes, drop us a line or just say hi. You can find the Robotics Center on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This Mayo Challenge podcast is brought to you by the University of Twente's Robotics Center.